All right, well, good morning. How is everyone? Still asleep? All right, well, I guess it's Judgment House. There's late nights all week. I, my wife and I, we were able to come on Monday night and be with you guys for Judgment House, and uh, that was just a joy for us, um, mainly just to see how everyone comes together and, and how you guys just work together and your team, and it's a fun environment, uh, just uh, serving um, you know, this community and, and sharing uh, the message of hope that Jesus gives us. Well, as soon as the uh, ushers are done taking up the offering, uh, children, you guys will be dismissed to your children's service. One of the things that every parent of a teenager desires their kid to know is that with the increase in privileges comes the increase in responsibility, right? When you get the privilege of driving the car, taking it out on your own, comes the responsibility that you will handle it with care, comes the responsibility that you will be safe, abide by the laws of the road. We're all confused this morning. Right, so with the increase in privilege comes the increase in responsibility. The church is privileged in amazing ways. God has lavished His riches upon us. We have hope that no one else has. We have a message of good news that no one else can proclaim. So then what are the responsibilities that come with the privilege? Today, that's what we're going to be looking at. For the past six months, we've been studying the book of Luke. And we have only four chapters left to go. Uh, It's hard for me to believe that we only have four chapters left to go. And the plan is that we will cover these next four chapters in the next six weeks. And whereas the first three chapters of the book of Luke cover roughly the first 30 years of Jesus' life, chapters 4 through 9 cover roughly two and a half years of Jesus' life. Then chapters 10 through 19, where we've been for several weeks, they cover the last six months of Jesus' life. Well, these last four chapters cover the last week, week and a half of Jesus' earthly life. What do we learn by that? What do we learn even by the amount of ink that Luke has used in giving the attention to the details and events of Jesus' life? It is evident that these last few chapters in the book of Luke are the focus of Jesus' life and ministry. They are the climax. They are the focal point. Yes, Jesus is remembered for his miraculous birth. Yes, Jesus is remembered for the wisdom in his teaching. Yes, he is remembered for his compassion for the poor, the sick, and the outcast. Yes, Jesus is remembered for his miracles. But Jesus is worshipped because of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And as these events that 
circle around his death and resurrection that Luke is recording for us in these last four chapters of his gospel account. These are the events that we will be looking at over the next six weeks. They are the defining point in God's redemptive history. They are the foundation to our Christian faith. So the sermons over the next few weeks, they might not seem to address any one particular issue in your life, issues that we have covered so far, such as worry, money, stewardship, issues that relate to your family life, parenting, marriage. But what Luke reveals for us in these last four chapters orients us to the bigger picture and provide for us the foundation for our hope in every particular life situation. What Jesus did at the end of his ministry is foundational for all that we believe and how we live our lives. And as a church, the very purpose for why we exist and what we do is rooted here in these last events of Jesus' life. Now, for a lengthy portion of Luke's gospel, Jesus has been leading his disciples on route to Jerusalem, the most important city in all of the Bible. It's the capital of Israel's nation and the capital of its religion. It's the place of the temple and the place of the palace, right? Jerusalem was home to Israel's kings. It was home to the high priest, and it was the focus of Israel's prophets, And as I mentioned several weeks ago when we were back in Luke chapter 9 and Jesus was setting out on this journey when he was heading out towards Jerusalem, we learned there that Jesus was going on a kingly conquest. He was going to establish his kingdom. We've also learned that Jesus' kingdom comes in stages. It has this already but not yet effect to it. Jesus has established his kingdom, but it is not yet fully experienced. Jesus chose to wear the cross before he would wear the crown. And we are living in the middle between that time when Jesus came 2,000 years ago and the time when Jesus will come again on a date and an hour that no man knows. Well, by the end of Luke 19, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. He's arrived in Jerusalem, and here the conflict that has been intensifying between Jesus and the religious leaders is going to just blow up. This is the tipping point for all of history. Okay? Up till this time, there were no churches as we know of churches today. Right? My ancient ancestors, and unless you're a Jew, your ancient ancestors probably knew nothing about the real God. Jesus was a Jew, and the Jews had a special relationship with God. They had a relationship with God that no other people group could claim. God had selected them to be his people, and he was going to be their God. And God didn't select Israel. He didn't select the Jews because they were great because they were famous, because they were large or mighty. For in fact, they were small. They were insignificant. They were weak. They were unknown. And he chose them to be his people 
He chose them to be the people he worked in, through, and among to reveal himself to the nations. Okay, don't miss that in what God's original intent for the nation of Israel was about. God chose them to show his grace to them, to enter a covenant with them, so that he would work in them, through them, and among them to reveal himself to the nations, to others. God would use their lack of fame to highlight his glory. God would use their weakness to better reveal his power. See, it's not that God wanted to exclude any man from knowing him. For we read in passages like Malachi 1.11, For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God wanted the world to know who he was, to see who he was through the Jews. What an incredible privilege Israel had. A privilege that no one else on earth enjoyed. And what a high responsibility that came with that. So this is why God gave to the Jews the symbol of his dwelling place on earth, the symbol of his presence on earth. That was the temple. In an earlier form, it had been the tabernacle, which moved around with Israel as they journeyed through the wilderness. But once they had settled in the land, God gave them the temple built first by Solomon after it was destroyed and the people were exiled, then it was rebuilt. And the temple was the symbol of God's presence on earth. The temple was where man could encounter God. But we don't go to the temple today, do we? We don't offer sacrifices at the temple today. Something has changed. History has changed. The temple doesn't even exist anymore. It was destroyed. And and the Jews, if you go there today, the Jews don't even have control over where the temple once stood. So does that mean that God has left us here on our own? Does that mean that God has removed himself, that he's at a distance? What happened? Why would God allow the temple to be destroyed? Where is God present today? Well, I invite you to go to the end of Luke chapter 19. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19 and Luke chapter 20 today. And in Luke chapter 19, we'll pick up with Jesus entering into Jerusalem. You may be familiar with the story. He told his disciples to go into the city and that there would be a colt tied up and that they were to take that colt. And as they were taking the colt, that the owner would say, Hey, what are you doing with my colt? And they were to respond to him, the Lord has need of it. And so the owner then gave permission, and they brought the colt to Jesus, and they put him on top of it. And in verse 35, we'll pick up reading. It says, and they brought the borrowed colt to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, 
the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. These people were honoring Jesus as the Messiah King. They are singing praise to Jesus because they have long awaited his coming. Well, in verse 39, it says that some of the Pharisees who were in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. How dare they sing praises to you? Verse 40, Jesus said, I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, the Pharisees are thinking only God is worthy of worship. There is only one true God, and only He is worthy of worship. Well, they were right. They were absolutely right. But where they were wrong is that Jesus is God. Jesus is worthy of the praise that these people were singing to Him. But next we read something that's a bit strange. Next, we come across Jesus looking out upon the city, and he's weeping. He's filled with sorrow and grief. Here Jesus is, finally reaching his destination, reaching his journey, and he's the focus of this jubilant celebration. But when he sees Jerusalem, he mourns. He's, he's, he's not excited. He's saddened. He's grieved. And what we see in this is we see God's own compassion for Israel. Jesus' focus was not on himself. It's outward. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem for himself. He went for others. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem because things were bad in Jerusalem. Things had gotten out of hand. As I said, Jerusalem was the most privileged city on earth. It had been chosen by God to be the place where he dwelled among men. It was designated to be a safe haven, a place of healing for the nations, a place of peace and protection and praise. Jerusalem was to reflect God's kingdom on earth and to emit his glory out into the whole world. Yet again, and again, and again, and again. God's people rejected God's plan. That's what we read about in the Old Testament over and over and over again. God's people rejecting God's plan. They rejected God's leadership. And God was so incredibly patient with them. Because over and over and over again, He would send them prophet after prophet after prophet that warning them to turn, warning them to submit to God's will, but they were a stiff-necked people. They would not bend. They wanted to go their own way. And yet, even knowing that they were being disobedient, they assumed that God would always bless them. 
They assumed that they would always have God's blessing because, after all, they were God's chosen people. But where's the temple today? Where's the privilege that Israel once had? Things had gotten bad in Jerusalem. Look in verses 45 and 46 of Luke 19. It says that Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Things had gotten so bad in Jerusalem that the temple, the very symbol of God's presence on earth, the place where man could go to encounter God, had been turned into a money-making scheme that exploited the poor. The way this worked was that the Jews would travel from all over to Jerusalem, to the temple, to offer sacrifice to God that He might forgive them of their sins. And when you're going on a trip, the key is to pack light. Now, I know some of you, perhaps of a certain gender, like to pack everything, right? You try to pack everything going on a trip, everything but the kitchen sink. But if you're journeying to Jerusalem, coming from miles and miles and miles away, it would be days and weeks and a month's journey, and there were no cars, there were no planes, there were no trains, you would want to pack light, right? So the sheep and the goat and the pigeons that you would need to bring to the temple and offer as a sacrifice, that would be a burden to travel with. Have to keep the things alive and keep the things safe. So the religious leaders, they decided to capitalize on this. They decided to offer a convenience to the people. And what they would do is that they would say, when the people came to Jerusalem, came into the temple, they would say, you can buy one of our animals and offer it. So you don't have to bring your own. But of course, they got greedy. And so sometimes they would even say to the people who did, in fact, bring their own animals, your animal isn't good enough. You need a temple-approved animal. And so they would make them buy from them if they were to offer a sacrifice. Kind of like when you go into a theater or you go into a stadium and they make you throw out your drink or you go into the airport and they make you throw away your water and then you have to buy just an outrageously expensive drink inside. It's kind of what was going on here. The religious leaders were making this huge profit at the cost of the poor and the outcasts. The temple customs had become so corrupt that Jesus said at the end of chapter 20, verse 47, that the scribes devoured widows. The most helpless people in all society were widows. And the religious leaders were gaining at their expense. Okay, so you remember the story which comes in the first part of chapter 21 where A widow comes and she puts her two small copper coins, her two mites, into the offering. And that's all that she had to live on. You remember that scene? And and Jesus says, I tell you that she gave more than all the rich people who gave out of their abundance. Yes, Jesus is commending her generosity, but even more so, he's condemning the corruption and the practices of the religious leadership. Jesus looks at Jerusalem and he weeps and he enters the temple 
And filled with his righteous anger, he drives them out because they had made it a place that God had not intended. They had made it a place to gain when God had intended for it to be a place to give and to heal and a place of blessing. Jesus says, enough. And he puts an end to it. God's vision for the temple was for it to be a place where blessing flowed to all peoples. But the people whom God had entrusted to be his agents of blessing turned God's resource of blessing into a source of income. The temple was to be a place of joy, and they had made it a place of burden. The temple was to be a fountain of life, and they had made it a drain. So Jesus sees the corruption. He understands this is not what God had intended, and he says, enough. He clears the place in his righteous anger. And when he did this, all the practices that were going on, all the sacrifices that were being made, must have temporarily stopped. And so what we learn is that Jesus did not come to Jerusalem and enter the temple to reform the temple but he came to replace the temple. G.K. Bailey, in his book, The Temple and the Church's Mission, says that Jesus' point is that the temple must be replaced because it was not fulfilling its God-ordained role as witness to the nations. But it had become a symbol of a superstitious belief that God would protect and rally his people regardless of if they ever conformed to his will. Jesus is exercising authority that no one would have dared to ever exercise. He's trumping the authority of the religious leaders. Those religious leaders thought that God had given them the authority. So here's the crisis. Here's the turning point. Who is this Jesus to think that he can come in here and change things up? Who has the ultimate authority? Jesus or these religious leaders? Who owns the place? Who gets control over how man encounters God? Look in verse 47 of chapter 19. It says that Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Okay, that's the action of the next three chapters. The religious leaders in Jerusalem were seeking, surveying, conniving, plotting, scheming how to destroy Jesus because he was threatening their authority. But again and again and again, they could not find anything against him. In chapter 20, Luke gives us three different attempts that the religious leaders make to destroy Jesus. Right? These are all mudslinging attempts. You're familiar with mudslinging. Used in political campaigns where basically both candidates are just trying to demean the character of the other person. Trying to reveal all the dirt they can on the other person. All the bad things about their opponent so that the people lose confidence in their leadership. 
And so the religious leaders are trying to find all the dirt on Jesus so that the people who are hanging on his words, who are following him, will, will believe that Jesus doesn't have the authority that he claims. They're trying to discredit Jesus' authority. But Jesus lived a perfect life, so they've got nothing. No immoral conduct, no lies, no past mistakes. They can't find anything on Jesus. He is perfect. So they go to plan B, and plan B is to try to set a trap. Right? And they set three traps. The first was a personal attack in which they asked Jesus about his credentials. Who put you in charge, Jesus? See, Jesus didn't have the education that these scribes and Pharisees had. Jesus didn't have the family background, the pedigree that these religious leaders had. So they tried to trap him by questioning, what right do you have? What credentials can you show us? The second attack that they make is a political attack. They try to trap Jesus. They hope that they can get Jesus to say that it's unlawful to give taxes to the Roman government so that then they can turn Jesus over to the Rome as an insurgent and that Rome will deal with him. And then the third attack was a theological trap with a group of leaders who didn't believe in the resurrection. They, they try to get Jesus to contradict himself in his beliefs. But it's fascinating to read the wit and the wisdom that Jesus demonstrates in each encounter. And again and again and again, Jesus proves that he is innocent. He is completely blameless. Jesus is showing that he is in control. Jesus is showing that he indeed does have authority to overthrow and replace the corrupted system. And then Jesus gives us a parable. He tells us a story that illustrates all that's going on in these events. So let's read that parable in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. While the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, Surely not. But Jesus looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. All right, so who do you think 
the owner of the vineyard represents in this story? The owner of this vineyard represents God the Father. And Jesus' listeners would have been very aware that this is who the vineyard owner represented because in Isaiah chapter 5, God is portrayed as one who builds a vineyard. And so in this parable, this owner entrusts the care of the vineyard to others. He gives them both a privilege and a responsibility. Sound familiar? He gives them a privilege and a responsibility, just as God had given Israel's leaders the privilege of being his people, the privilege of caring and leading his people, and the responsibility of being his witness to other nations. But when the owner of the vineyard wants to know how his vineyard is doing, the tenants don't act like tenants. They act like they're the owners. And so when the servant of the true owner comes, they don't treat him like a messenger. They treat him like an intruder. They beat him up and they send him away empty-handed. The owner gives them a second chance but they do the same thing, even worse to the next guy. The owner gives them even another chance. He is patient. He is long-suffering with these rebellious tenants. And this represents how Israel again and again rejected God's prophets, rejected God's messengers. Yet God was very patient and long-suffering with them. Now notice that the tenants' actions was not just an offense against those servants who came. It wasn't just an offense against the messengers of the owner. But it was an offense and attack against the owner himself. They were trying to interfere with the owner's plans. They were acting in rebellion against him. They were denying that the vineyard really belonged to him, and they were believing that it instead belonged to themselves. At that point, if you're the owner, what would you do? What would you do if you were the owner? Well, probably not what the owner did. None of us are this patient or gracious. The owner sends his own son. The text says his beloved son. You probably don't even need an explanation here. John 3.16, most famous verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. He sent his son. And back in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, when Jesus is being baptized, what was it that God said of Jesus when he's coming up out of the water? He said, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is this son that God has sent. And what happens to the son? They murder him. Just like the religious leaders were about to murder Jesus in a matter of days. And so Jesus asks his listeners, this is the crisis in the story. After the son has been murdered, he asks his listeners, now, what do you think the owner is going to do to these tenants? What do you think God will do when his people don't act like servants and they act like owners? 
Well, Jesus gives the answer in verse 16. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the leaders heard this, they said, surely not. Heaven forbid, may it never be. But Jesus looked directly at them. And he said, what then is it that is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Why were the leaders so shocked? Why did they say, surely not? Heaven forbid, may it never be so. When Jesus said that the owner would come and destroy the tenants. I mean, it only makes sense that the father of a murdered son would bring justice, would vindicate his son. So why were they shocked? Well, the reason they are shocked is because Jesus says the vineyard is going to be given to others. And the religious leaders, remember, had assumed that God would always bless them. But someone other than Israel would be given the privilege of being God's people. And someone other than Israel's leaders would be entrusted with the responsibility to bear fruit for God. The leaders had just assumed it would always be their privilege, it would always be their authority, it would always be their responsibility. But Jesus is saying, nope, it's over for you guys. You've lost the privilege because you've rejected the Son. In verse 17, I love how Luke writes that Jesus looks directly at his audience. Making no mistake, making it very clear that Jesus is talking to these leaders. He's talking about them. And as God had promised long ago in Psalm 118, which Jesus quotes, the one that God would use as the cornerstone, the foundation, the building block for his eternal plan would be rejected. The Jewish leaders neglected their responsibility and they lost their privileges. They rejected Jesus and they were crushed. Well, that was them. That's what happened to them. That's what happened to the religious Jewish leaders in Jesus' day. So what about us? What significance does any of this have for us as the church? Well, the good news is that the owner didn't just destroy the tenants. He entrusted the care of the vineyard to others. And Jesus didn't just overturn the temple. He replaced the temple. Well, with what? With who? John 2, 19, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And three days after the religious leaders would murder Jesus on the cross, he himself rose from the dead. Before Jesus came, God's presence on earth was represented by the temple. Jesus came and said he was the Son of God. John says that Jesus is the Word of God who dwelt among us. Colossians says that the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. So Jesus is the replacement. Jesus is the new temple. But it doesn't stop there. By the authority that Jesus had to replace the temple, he uses that authority to give his followers the privilege of being the dwelling place of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is writing to Gentile believers, those who were not Jews, 
And he says in Ephesians 2, 18, For through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you, church, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, in Jesus, you, church, also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Where is God's dwelling place upon man today? It is in the church. Peter, who would have heard Jesus speaking these words in Luke chapter 20, later wrote these words to the church in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, As you, church, come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Others stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. What a privilege! that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus himself said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, comes upon you. And you will receive this power, you will receive this privilege so that you will be enabled for your responsibility, that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Jesus brought a reversal of order. Jesus is the hinge of all history. Before, people went to Jerusalem, to the temple, to encounter God. Now, God goes with his people as we go to the nations to proclaim how excellent God is. We no longer need a certain place or building to worship God. We no longer need a priest or a pastor to go to God on our behalf. Each of us have direct access. We no longer need an animal to sacrifice to appease God. Christ became the last sacrifice. But with privilege always comes responsibility. With privilege always comes responsibility. The portion of Luke's gospel that we've been looking at today shows God's judgment on the Jewish leaders who led their people astray. They were entrusted with the privileged care of God's vineyard, but they acted as owners instead of stewards. And this serves as the warning 
this also serves as a warning to the church because we now have both the privilege and the responsibility that they once had. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, was very concerned that the church would understand this warning, would hear this warning. He wrote in 11.22 of the book of Romans, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Note both the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, church, provide you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Provided you too understand that it is a privilege to be the tenants of His vineyard. And don't think that you yourselves are the owner. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have committed yourself to live under His authority because you recognize that Jesus indeed does have all authority. Then this is the point of today's message that I want you to leave this place with. This is the point, this is the take home. It is that the privilege of knowing Jesus has the responsibility of making him known. The privilege of knowing Jesus has the responsibility of making him known. The Jewish leaders, they wanted that privilege, but they neglected that responsibility. The Bible doesn't say it's the responsibility of pastors alone or the responsibility of deacons alone to make Jesus known to the world. It's the task of the entire church. So church, are we going to be faithful stewards or are we going to act like owners? Are we going to make Jesus known or are we going to keep him to ourselves? That's the choice that is always before us. It's the choice that we must always keep on the forefront of our mind. Let's pray. Father, the privilege of being called your children, the privilege of knowing that you have prepared a kingdom and you have given us the inheritance that only Jesus deserved is an amazing privilege. And Father, we are humbled that it comes with a great responsibility. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us. Father, we thank you that you've empowered us with your spirit, and I pray that you would help us now to fulfill that responsibility, that we would be a people that together, by the way that we love one another, by the way that we serve our community, that, that Jesus' name would be known and be made famous through what we do. I pray that this would be a church that is not focused on ourselves, but like Christ, is focused on others. 
is not seeking just to collect, but is seeking how we might be a fountain of blessing. Father, we commit ourselves to you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, this time, you have an opportunity just to respond, to reflect on how God's Spirit has been prompting you today. If you want to come up here, I'm always available to pray with you. You can bring others, come and pray up here. You can stay at your seat and pray. But I encourage you, let's all stand and let's sing as Baxter leads us.